get 30 customers, get them to pay you $500 a month. And all of a sudden you have $15,000 a month in recurring revenue. And all you had to do was put a little tiny new spin on something that you've already proven. Don't try to create a market. I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? Today, I interview my friend, Rob Sobers. He runs marketing for a $6 billion company, which is hard to fathom. In this episode, we talk about his framework for how he comes up with startup ideas with something that he calls playing in easy mode. We talk about what it's like running marketing for a publicly traded company, his hack for making blog content go viral, why B2B companies are actually the safer option when getting started, and finally, the trend he would jump on if he were starting a company today. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Well, Rob Sobers, would you introduce yourself? Sure. Thanks for having me on, Jim. Uh, my name is Rob Sobers. I'm a VP of marketing at a cybersecurity software company called Veronis, based out of New York City, and did a bunch of things prior to joining Veronis uh, as a software developer and in my earlier days a designer. And so kind of have a little bit of a disjointed past in terms of my career, but here I am today. I'm excited to talk about all, all things business, cybersecurity, marketing, anything you want to chat about. Awesome. So I don't know if you remember how we met, but I was reading the book Hacking Growth by Sean Ellis, who came up with the phrase growth hacker. And he gave you a shout out in that book around the blog post you wrote around, was it the $10 tech stack or the $9 marketing stack? And I, re I read that because I was with the company at the time. We're like, we've got to update our, our marketing tech stack. And I went to your blog post and it was, you laid out everything that needs to be done. It was so good. We reached out to you as, can we just hire you and have you do that? And it was an awesome experience. And then from then we've been able to kind of become friends. But do you remember that when I basically was stalking you and sought you out to help us yeah yeah that blog post um got me more inbound inquiries from people you know wanting to hire me to do what i wrote about in the blog post it's funny how, you, how that goes it's like you give everybody step-by-step -step instructions they read through it they say that's exactly what i want but i don't really want to do it myself and i might mess it up so let me just hire the person that wrote this and so that that, that blog post actually um worked out quite well for me but the idea behind it was that you don't have to invest in, you know, big expensive software to put together a marketing stack for your company. At the time, I was building a marketing stack for a small startup that I co-founded with my wife called Munchkin Report. And um, we had no budget. And so I figured out the cheapest way to cobble together analytics and tracking and usage dashboards of our product on our mobile app through, you know, free trial versions of software. And, you know, as I was building it and putting it together, I just wrote about it along the way. And eventually hit publish on a blog post. Well, it's actually kind of a nice case study in how to make something go viral. You literally found a pain point that who, who knows how big the reach is, but the people that have that pain point, it's very real. And you held anything back. It's like not giving away the secret sauce. It was kind of the opposite. You literally said everything you need to do. You gave so much detail that after you got done reading it, you're like, okay, that's awesome, but that's going to be so hard to do it. Let me just hire you to do it. So I don't know if that, obviously it wasn't intentional to become you know, a, a marketing attribution consultant, but it's kind of what happened from it. But that's a nice kind of case study. That was impressive. Yeah. And I'm not unique in that. You know, in fact, one of the content agencies I've hired at Veronis, the main reason I hired them was because I, I stumbled upon a blog post they wrote about sort of, I think it was titled something like how to generate 250,000 unique visitors to your blog or recurring visitors, something like that. 
And it was, it wasn't one of these like traditional marketing posts where it's just all fluff and it's just like concepts. It was actually like a full, well-written case study with everything that they did and their methodology. It was the, the entire playbook and I just didn't have time to implement it or the resources. So, you know, there was a contact us button on the blog post and there I go, reach out and, uh, and hire them. I know. It's fine. I think people get so nervous to be like, oh, I can't give away my IP, my secret sauce. I find the opposite. I share everything and it kind of, I think it comes back to help. We have one blog post. It's the top case studies around launching a startup and we just nerded out on it and it accidentally became one of our highest traffic posts. And so, okay, I need to really lean into that, but um, no, su- super cool. So speaking of your blog, you wrote a blog post called Playing on Easy Mode. And the, the whole premise of this podcast is if I was starting today and I I think when people are thinking of starting something or startup ideas, it's actually pretty easy to be simplistic and okay, I need an idea. It needs to be consumer facing. It needs to be something big that goes viral. And your post is kind of contrarian to that. It's the opposite of that. To summarize this framework of launching an idea, first, don't go B2C, go B2B. Don't go for a one-time purchase, go for recurring purchases, go for software as a service, establish a tech stack. But I think the thing that I love is how instead of going big, let's go small and focused and niche. Don't be the best, but choose one thing and be great at it. Could you kind of expand on this idea of playing on easy mode? Because since you wrote this, I've seen other people have similar frameworks. I think they stole that from Rob because this blog post is very old. But yeah, you, you want to expand on it? Yeah, so I give a, a talk at universities, most typically called um, Eight Things I Wish I Knew. And it has, you know, honestly, just things I wish I knew when I was leaving college and entering the world, things that my parents never taught me about, you know, finance or about starting my own business. Like I came from a very blue collar background and like, I was just like, I got to get a job, do what I'm told. There's no entrepreneurial DNA in me, even though I've gone on to like kind of learn entrepreneurship. And so I wanted to build a talk that would impart a lot of critical advice, like keys to succeeding in my view. And one of them is playing on easy mode. And the idea is every time I talk to these college kids, they'd be like, oh, I'm going to create the next Uber. Or I'm going to create, you know, this two-sided marketplace with like real world interactions. Like there had, there was always sort of like this inherently really impossible thing that they wanted to weave into their business. <laughs> and I would ask them like, well, why, why are you playing on like the hard game? Like do something super easy. You can create a B2B business that has recurring revenue that, you know, let's say like pick a niche like accounting software, like something like QuickBooks. So just make QuickBooks, but like put your own little spin on it. Like there's a proven market for it. Put your own little spin on it. Get 30 customers, get them to pay you $500 a month. And all of a sudden you have $15,000 a month in recurring revenue. And all you had to do was put a little tiny new spin on something that is already proven. Don't try to create a market. Uh, David Cancel of Drift calls this innovation, not invention. So just like, again, put a little bit of a spin on it. And we see it time and time again, right? Like Pinboard is like the lightest weight version of Pinterest you could ever have, right? Or, uh, you know, back in the day, there was like an app called Delicious. It was just like a bookmarking app. So simple, but like people wanted the simple version of Pinterest. You know, people might want delightful version of Slack. Slack and Discord, that's another good example. Like, why do we need Discord if we have Slack? Like, they're functionally pretty much the same thing, but it has like a a different spin on it. Like Slack is for work, Discord is for play. Mm -hmm. So, you know, find something that you really love. If it's accounting software or, you know, CRM, something that you can like nerd out on and put your own spin on it. You know, don't try to create a new market. 
No, I love it. And I think I see people do it well where, okay, you're going B2B. Don't try and compete with these big behemoths. Put your own spin on it. Sometimes for me, I think it's easier if you know that persona extremely well. Bonsai is an invoice software just for freelancers. They're not trying to compete yeah. with QuickBooks. That'd be so hard to go head to head. But if you can choose that niche and that's how you battle. I think ConvertKit has done a good example where they launched as the email service provider for creators and now they've kind of blown up. But I feel like they wedged in mm -hmm. by doing your framework of playing on easy mode and choosing that path. But yeah, because as like a B2B agency owner, it's recurring revenue. You can sell higher ticket items when you go B2B. It's yeah. But I think when you're in college, when you're starting out, you default to consumer because that's what you know. You're a consumer more than a business professional. It's so much harder to get someone to spend five bucks of their own money than to get someone to spend 500 bucks on a corporate credit card. <laughs> you know, it's just why make it so hard on yourself, you know? And I've made these mistakes myself. Like my app, Bunchkin Report, ended up being more popular amongst like individual caregivers, like nannies and stuff like that, and families than it was for schools, which was the intended target audience. It's a like an app for daycares to track like what's going on with kids during the mm -hmm. day so that parents can like have on their phone like pictures and like all the different things that their kid did. And it ended up being so consumer heavy by accident, <laughs> you know? So it's just so much harder to sell to consumers <laughs> and businesses. So I always recommend B2B for your first business. Yeah, the daycares, they already have a line item for software where they have a budget that you can get a part of that. Whereas consumer, they don't have a line item. So it's just like an uphill battle. But um, yeah, no, I'm obsessed with that. I want to get into some ideas around that. But before I do, I mean, one thing people know about Rob, he's been an awesome kind of mentor. Even with my agency growth hit, we'll do like quarterly calls where I'm just getting an outsider's perspective. And one thing that I like about your perspective is you're a former developer, designer turned marketer. And so I think even the way you you approach problems is completely different than maybe a traditional marketer. And I'm actually a, a little envious of that. So you've made this kind of career pivot or not pivot, or maybe more evolved into technical dev and design work into marketing. Can you talk, what are some advantages you have that maybe even non-technical people wouldn't be aware of as you approach growth and marketing? Yeah, well, the easy one is like, even as VP of marketing, like I can't tell you how many times I'm like tweaking like style sheets on a page, <laughs> right? Like we get something back from like an agency or development team and there'll be like something slightly off. And the fact that I could just go in and fix it myself and not have to like send it back for another round of revisions um, has been like a game changer for me. <laughs> just like, <laughs> and I never feel like I'm having the wool pull over my eyes when I'm trying to get like a bid or something like that for a specific project. And they're like, oh, well, technically we need to use this other API. So it's going to cost more. I can be like, actually, no, you don't have to use that API. I use this one. Mm -hmm. It's kind of nice to, to have that perspective and the ability to kind of like open up the hood and know what exactly what is going on. You know, it's kind of like in other areas of my life, I can't do that. Like if someone tells me something wrong, something's wrong with my car, I just have to trust. And I kind of hate that feeling. So, right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it just so happens that, you know, in, in my marketing roles in my current one now, I sell to technical people. So, it, you know, even though my title is uh, VP of marketing, I can show up to a customer call and we can geek out on cybersecurity stuff. And I, I have to work to gain credibility. Like I have to like work against my title a little bit in, in customer meetings, but I can still <laughs> I can hang. Right. It's helped me out there. 
Yeah, and I think just even the way you think about growth experiments or whatever, this might sound super simple, but literally knowing how the internet and how websites work from a technical perspective, sometimes you might even take for granted where, where people wouldn't be as in the know with that. But I don't know, that that's something that I see that, you know, I even took coding for non-coders type of boot camps just so I could somewhat speak the language when I was starting out. I mean, that's the landscape you're playing in when it's all online. You need to know how everything works. Absolutely, yeah. Actually, experimentation and conversion rate optimization was what got me into marketing in the first place because another software developer that I was lucky enough to meet named Patrick McKenzie, who now works for Stripe, he was doing consulting and he told the story about how he was a developer all his life, created a, a piece of software called Bingo Card Creator and had to learn marketing just in order for it to succeed. Because as we all know, it's very rare that you build something and it just works, right? That a group of developers can build something and someone finds out about it, it goes viral and grows on its own. You kind of have to do a little bit of marketing, a little bit of branding, maybe sometimes sales, enterprise sales and stuff like that. And uh, Patrick came in uh, to the company I was working at the time and did an engagement with us. And he was showing us a side of marketing that I'd never really known of, which was, you know, the concept of a traffic like funnel, right? We have this amount of traffic. We run an experiment. We compare the conversion results in, in version A versus version B. And this is what it means to the bottom line of the business. And, you know, the fact that like this sort of, I mean, now it's, it's super popular AB testing, obviously, but it just appealed to me so much more than like advertising did or like your, what you would traditionally think of as marketing. Right. Yeah. The traditional top of funnel approach of branding and awareness campaigns really get into the data and tactical. I totally agree. That's so much more exciting and interesting. So you've kind of, you know, you've worn different hats on the technical side, on the marketing side, you've launched your own SaaS product, but now you're running marketing for a publicly traded company. So tell me about how your role and how you even think about growth changes where you're looking at quarterly goals, you have a constant ticker showing the performance of the company, and you very much impact that. How does that change your mindset as you think about your overall growth strategy? If someone that's starting out that's running a startup, what can they learn from that? Yeah, I think you just have to be a lot more methodical with your approach because you can't miss your goals, right? Like it's <laughs> yeah. once you get, you know, before we went public, you know, we, we practiced being public, right? We treated ourselves like a public company in terms of our revenue, in terms of our pipeline and everything. And you have to be a very predictable business if you're going to go public. And that means as a marketer, making sure you can deliver on creating pipeline at a specific rate, right? And in a year like 2020, where one of your biggest marketing tactics goes out the window, which are, you know, in-person events in, in enterprise software sales, like in-person events are huge, whether it be conferences or individual small scale field events, like corporate dinners or golf events, that that's a big weapon that completely goes out the window. And as a public company, you know, you can't afford to have pipeline disappear. And so you learn to be very methodical. You, it's almost like planning a portfolio of your tactics, making sure you have the right balance got to fill up pipeline in Europe just as much as you fill it in you know North America and you have to kind of think on a global scale it's a bit trickier um, but I think a lot of startup founders can benefit from you know looking at things that way and trying to be a more predictable business you know can help your bottom line as well 
I mean, it's something we talk about too, is how do we have a predictable, repeatable and scalable way to grow? Because mm-hmm. that's truly how you make a business work. And I, I think when you're working in these quarterly intervals with goals you have to hit, it forces you to work that muscle. I think there's pros and cons to that. The pros is you, you're going to have a well-oiled machine potentially. And I, I've seen you with your team, what you've been able to do. But is the, the con would be like, do sometimes you have to sacrifice long-term strategic moves for, for short-term goals? Is that the reality? of it sometimes. Yeah. And I think that's true for any company, whether they're public or not, but maybe more so for public companies, you know, as a marketer, like I'm always looking at where we're spending our marketing budget and our time and attention, you know, marketing budget's not just about the dollars that you spend and where you spend them, but also your focus. And we can either focus on performance marketing, like pure demand gen, looking at, let's say, Facebook ads as a channel for direct response marketing, where I want to see a specific number of sales qualified leads coming from a specific amount of dollars I'm putting into Facebook ads. And I'm going to rely on that to fill and meet my sales qualified lead quota. I can choose to do that, which is very short term oriented because it might get me meetings with for my sales team right now and it might turn into business, you know, two months from now into actual revenue, or I can take a long play and do more of a brand building campaign, something that, you know, is going to make Veronis a more well-known company, a more household name in cybersecurity. And I feel like that's a tough balance always. It's like the branding stuff is very hard for me coming from that, like (laughs) technical background. Like I like to see the math work out. I like to know what a dollar is going to get me with branding. It's a leap of faith, right? And it's a slow build. But when you hit a tipping point, then everything else comes so much easier. All the performance marketing stuff becomes so much easier once you have a household name. I mean, I read an article about Airbnb not too long ago, and they're like, oh, yeah, we learned in the pandemic when we cut our marketing budget that we actually didn't need a lot of marketing. And that's easy for them to say after they've got like <laughs> the brand. It's like, yeah, we right? don't have Facebook yeah. ads anymore because we're Airbnb now. But if you had said that, you know, 10 years right. ago or whenever they started, it's, uh, you know, probably wouldn't be true. Yeah, that does speak to like the, the brand awareness investment compounds and can help you over the long haul. So I, I probably should have even called out your marketing executive, publicly traded company, and it kind of aligns with the easy mode in the sense that it's B2B. One thing that I understand with your business, and I'm going to dumb it down and you can correct me, you're selling very, very expensive products and services where the close time can be over a year year and a half, two years. And so from a marketing perspective, to be able to pull these levers to get results at this ripple effect where you do something and hope to see the output in months or years. And so one thing you introduced me to was this idea of account-based marketing, really kind of flipping the funnel on its head of traditional marketing is like, stop at the top of the funnel, start at the top of the funnel, get in front of everybody to find customers. Whereas your value is so high with an individual customer, you can make a spreadsheet and be like, here are the hundred accounts we want to close. And this will be a game changer for our business. So if I'm a B2B business owner, first, what is ABM? When should I be thinking about doing it? And can you kind of walk through what that looks like? Can I put three questions in one right there? Yeah. Yeah. So account-based marketing, you know, people try to complicate it, but it, it is really simple. It's very, very targeted marketing, right? So a lot of people look at it like it's the hundred accounts that I want to close, like as an aspirational thing, like, oh, I'm going to pick Pepsi. I'm going to pick Target. I'm going to pick... IOTA, and they just like build this wish list, and it's like, okay, now let's try to market to the people at those accounts that make decisions about security software. You shouldn't look at it that way. Like, 
account selection is the first part of ABM, but you should be looking at intent data. You should be looking at things like, have we met with them in the past? Like maybe they looked at our software, maybe we had a meeting last year and they were interested, but didn't have budget at the time, right? Maybe it's people that we know are customers of a close competitor. So we know they have the need already. So you take all of these different facets. What if, in some cases, it might be their tech stack. Like let's say I sell backup software for Salesforce. I'm going to want to obviously start my account-based marketing list with people who use Salesforce. So you have to really like do a decent job with selection. And if you have a sales team, they might have some insight on the account. So you can, as a marketer, with all the data at hand, build like a curated list and then put it in front of the sales team. And then they can say, actually, no, like, I know the CISO there. I know the CIO there. They're not interested right now. Let's check those off. And by the way, I don't see so-and-so account on this list. Let's add it in. And you work with the sales team to kind of hone that list. That's step one of account-based marketing. Step two is now warming those people up with some awareness ads. Like I always like to start with targeted ads and there's we use a company called Demandbase. There's there's lots of software out there where you can run ad campaigns that are targeted at specific companies. And the way it does it is like usually a reverse IP lookup. So if you're on wallstreetjournal.com and uh, there's a banner ad slot, it can only run your ads when it detects that people from the companies that you want to market to are on that site. So uh, that's one way to do it. Obviously, LinkedIn ads are another big ABM tool. That's fascinating. So I was curious on the, the warm up as far as how you do those pre-ads before you get in front of them. But the reverse IP lookup and LinkedIn ads makes a lot of sense. So account selection, warm up, and then, and then, sorry, I interrupted you. Keep going. That's awesome. Oh, no. I mean, and you can do these out of order, but I don't really recommend it. Like you want to kind of like get people in a company, like seeing and hearing your brand before you make that first outreach, right? Because if you just put a company on a list and then you start cold emailing them, man, you might luck out every now and then, but isn't it better if everybody on the team that you're trying to connect with, like when they get that first cold email, they're like, oh yeah, we've been seeing... Veronis, like I've been seeing their ads all over the place. I feel like I'm hearing a lot about them. Maybe it's worth checking them out. Yeah, after you've warmed them up with some ads, you do some cold outreach. Some people like to do direct mail in ABM campaigns, stuff like that. So there's a bunch of tactics you can use, but most of them you'll find in like a regular marketing portfolio, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah. That's interesting. It's almost like the pre-ads, if you can get them with the right mindset, whether it's positioning yourself as a thought leader, clearly identifying their problems. So that way, if they see you in the inbox, they're not just turned off. Like, okay, they, they get it. The other thing with your close time, are you trying to hit different my, like, so with us, I actually don't even know our close time average. Sometimes we can close companies super quick. It's like a week or two. Other times it's, we've been talking with them for years. We have an email newsletter that we send weekly where that has been a good way to keep people engaged, but it's not very strategic. Are you guys thinking like, okay, we talked to this person six months ago. We haven't spoke with them. We haven't had them do a webinar. We haven't attended a conference with them. Do you have those checkpoints to try and keep them warm, knowing that it's going to take a year or so to close? Yeah. And that's where like, I love to geek out on marketing attribution to see like, what are the common pathways that people take to closed one? And what are like the commonalities between accounts? Like, is it webinars, right? Like, does attending an executive dinner with our team, like, double the chance of closing that customer at somewhere in their journey? And is it better as a beginning touch point? Or does that have to happen after we have an opportunity created? So, like, analyzing all of those middle touches, right? And that's why, in, in a way, like, you know, I say easy mode, like, go B2B. But in a way, there's certain things in B2C that are much easier. Like, if I'm selling, you know, sneakers, I can go from, like, 
first touch to close, you know, someone paying a hundred bucks for sneakers or whatever within a day, same day, even the same hour of me having a first touch. And in Facebook and, you know, my Facebook attribution dashboard, I can see the ROI of my ad spend like so quickly with, uh, you know, enterprise software, you're looking at, like you said, over a year. So your attribution window has to be really long and you have to decide like when to decay those beginning touches. Like when is a touch that happened you know, long ago, no longer relevant. When can you say like, this is probably not having an impact on their buying decision because they probably don't even remember that it happened and kind of looking at all the different yeah. milestones. It's very important. Yeah. And the thing that is nice, while it's a long close time, your lifetime value is huge. And I got to think with the sell that you're extremely sticky where the retention is very strong. So your lifetime value is huge. I get really nervous when I work with e-commerce companies that have a low price and it's high acquisition, meaning there's not a lot of repeat purchase. It's like you are always in that acquisition game. And it's about how efficient you are with finding new people. We, we work with B2B and B2C. It's always fascinating to compare the two. Uh, it's a spectrum b2b is a definitely a spectrum like someone like convert kit like you brought up if i don't know what their pricing is these days but you know they probably have like a hundred dollar a month plan you can close that same day as well i feel like um that's kind of almost a sweet spot where you're uh in that like a really affordable b2b range yeah where you don't worry so much about variability yeah. And pricing is literally one of the biggest levers that gets overlooked to drive growth. It, it sounds so obvious because you see this idea of people acquiring SaaS companies and doubling the price and doubling the revenue and, and, and that's it. And I love the idea of it being that simple, but also just being smart in how you price knowing your consumer. My friend Tommy, who runs ClickMinded, their courses are at four ninety nine because they found that people didn't with company credit cards didn't need approval over five hundred dollars, so they're sliding right in at that perfect price point. But yeah, I think ConvertKit they might just launch a free option. I need to look at their pricing thresholds. But I, I'd love to kind of on the B two B side, if this is the way to go, it's easy mode, potential high LTV. How do you grow those? Because if you get the right product with the right growth team, you're unstoppable. What B2B companies do you look at that are doing it really well? Any examples that come to mind? The example I love is Stripe. I feel like, I mean, their growth has been massive. I feel like they've built a massive brand as well. They have great brand recognition despite being a behind the scenes sort of product. Yeah. How'd they do that? That's so true. They made a behind the scenes product sexy and cool, right? Yeah. It is crazy. And they have some good content marketing, but they they don't run, as far as I know, they don't run a ton of ads. They don't even do a ton of content marketing. I think they lucked out in the way that they've built such a beautiful product that developers love because it is so elegantly designed that if a developer is adding payment to a product, like it's a no brainer now to go with Stripe. It's like, don't even bring up another option because that's just how much better the product is than anything else. And I think that reputation spread amongst developer community and yeah, it just it now dominates. Yeah. And it's great for like a big, massive company. And it also, I mean, I use Stripe for my Munchkin Report product, which is literally a two-person company, you know? <laughs> so like companies that can dominate at the low end and at the high end, like they have a nice self-service model for people like me who they don't want to invest enterprise sales time in, you know, for Munchkin Report. And then for someone that, you know, for Stripe selling to, I don't know, Starbucks or something like that, that's doing like a lot of payment flow, you know, they can dominate there too. Yeah, that, that's super interesting. Yeah, if you make it user-friendly, the product can sell itself a little bit. 
Actually, hitting on Munchkin, I don't know how much you want to talk about Munchkin Report, but I think it's pretty cool. Obviously, you're like full-time of Veronis, but you have this SaaS product on the side. It's funny, you, you kind of want it to be to be, be more B2B, but it sounds like it's getting more traction with nannies and babysitters. How do you think about Munchkin Report and, and growing that? Um, honestly, I don't think about growing it or doing anything <laughs> with it these days. It just kind of runs itself. And I think that's actually, you know, a lot of people's ambition is to just have something that kind of runs itself and makes enough money that you're happy with it and you don't have to kill yourself to grow it. You know, that's another thing I tell a lot of college kids is like, you don't have to build a billion dollar business. Like, do you realize if you can build a 30 person company and it's like 30 people you love working with and you can pay everybody 250K a year, like that's a really nice business, right? And uh, so, yeah, when I think of Munchkin Report, it's kind of just like, a, it's almost like a passion project for my wife and I. We don't really care to grow it. We don't do any marketing, like trials start from people who find us. And um, yeah, it, I haven't touched the code base in like two years. So um, that's awesome. That's hilarious. So one thing, you and I will compare notes on who's doing it well in B2B. How exciting can you be? You you kind of came up with this idea. I, I might be misphrasing it, but the reality show style of, of marketing. And I think Drift's done a, a really good job about it. Could you talk through that? Because I've, I've been super impressed with companies that do that well, because it actually gets me to engage and it, kind of a, a mini brand ambassador for them. But can you kind of elaborate on that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, Drift, you know, it's funny because like, when they started out, they were all doing this, like they were doing this reality show style marketing where I think Dave Gerhardt was uh, the guy's name who was the VP of marketing there. And he was a very big proponent, proponent of Drift employees just taking their cell phone and filming themselves, posting it to LinkedIn. And then they'd like sponsor that content. It was very like, <laughs> it was just so, it felt like it blended in with the rest of the content in your feed. You know, nowadays when you scroll on LinkedIn or you scroll on Facebook, it's very clear what the user-generated content is and then you hit a, a B2B product ad. Totally. Because it looks like a banner, right? It looks like a banner ad where Drift stuff always felt like it was just people sharing things, right? Like natively. And I know B2C, this is very commonplace, right? Like if you're selling a makeup product or something like that, you find an influencer who's got a big audience and they just create content that blends in with all their non, non-sponsored content. And you can borrow that in business. So Drift has, had done that really well. I think lately they've actually kind of like blended in more. I think they kind of stopped doing that um, to some degree. And uh, it's unfortunate. I feel like I don't see them and, and gravitate towards their content as much. They start to, they're starting to feel more corporate. One strategy we use at Veronis uh, quite a lot is, you know, find people who are doing like really cool YouTube shows or video courses on platforms like Pluralsight or YouTube and like hire them and say like, keep doing exactly what you're doing. You've yeah. built it's around cybersecurity. So it's, you know, it's not like we're hiring people that are in different markets and just now do it with a sponsored by Veronis like tag underneath. And again, going back to like the branding versus direct response, it's not going to send us trials, right? It's not going to be a big channel for generating revenue next quarter, but it's going to be helpful content. It's going to be people's faces. It's going to feel native to the platform and people will get to know Veronis more. And that's sort of like the type of branding I like to do. I find that type of branding to be more effective than your traditional like brand campaign branding, where you've got like your logo yeah. front and center. Totally. And I feel like you have to put out a white paper or you have to be this thought leader, which that stuff can work. Absolutely. But it kind of goes the opposite of that. Instead of having a thought leader, there's this book called Show Your Work. Mm -hmm. Don't 
create, just document and show people what you're working on instead of having answers yeah. have questions. And and I actually love seeing that. The guy at MicroAcquire does that where he's like, hey, what do you think of this new landing page design? Or like, hey, here's what we're doing. Here's what I'm trying to figure out. And you kind of get pulled along in their journey and their story, which I think everybody... I think likes. We especially see that on the consumer side. These D2C brands where the founding story is true and authentic, people gravitate towards that. And it can be done on the B2B side um, if, if you do it the right way. But that's something that I try and default to because I also think it's an easier way to create content rather than trying to always be this thought leader. Just like, hey, let me show my work. Yeah. I mean, we hired a, a security researcher called Cody Kinsey who had um, a really popular show called Cyber Weapons Lab. And now he runs a show for Verona's called Security Forward. And he streams like three, four times a week on Twitch and on YouTube. And he just like talks to other hackers and, you know, experiments and tinkers with like Wi-Fi hacking technology and stuff like that. And it's just so refreshing because it's not like another white paper ebook. Yeah. And recently, um, a guy on my team, Mike Buckby, he created something called a CISSP study hour. So in information security, a certification that a lot of people like to get is called a CISSP. And you have to study and take this like really comprehensive exam. And so he created this like study hour and he just streams on Twitch and he studies for the exam and people who are also studying for the exam chime in and they like kind of work along with him. It's amazing. Yeah. It's great content. It's helpful. It's helping people. We're not selling, but then people are like, they remember you. They say, Oh, Veronis, that's the CISSP study hour company. You know, like yeah. there's uh there's a lot of value in that, I think. Man, that's super interesting. It's it's like this new play of B2B content marketing, influencer marketing. Like I saw, I know you know HubSpot extremely well, but HubSpot acquiring yeah. uh, the hustle or trends, I thought was a super interesting move. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm interested to see what that looks like. I don't know if you saw that or have any thoughts on that, but I thought it was an interesting move. Yeah, I, I haven't seen that, but I'm a big fan of HubSpot. I mean, I feel like they can do no wrong. Like they, there's just so many smart people there. Um, I mean, just look at the stock price over the, the past few years. They just, uh, they're a great company, great product people, excellent marketers. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that company. Yeah, I mean, anytime I type in any generic marketing word, I'm pretty sure they're like the first result. So they're, um, yeah, they're, they're very good. So I want to get into, I love that you like do talks with college kids and you're like entrepreneurial self. The question I like to ask, okay, you're starting today. You know what you know. What would you do if you were starting today? And this can be like half-baked startup ideas or just trends you're excited about. Because I feel like you have your finger on the pulse of a lot of things. So I'd be interested to see like where your head is at. Yeah, I mean... One of the things that I regret a little bit coming out of college, and like I mentioned before, I came from a background where I was like, you just get a job and you do a job and you're lucky to have a job and like you don't really break out of a mold. The fact that I went to college is actually kind of like contrary to like what my family wanted and expected. So I wish, especially given the time when I graduated, how Silicon Valley and startups were. Like I wish I had tried a few different ideas and joined a few different startups and you know, saw how they worked. So I would say like, especially if you're at an age where you don't have a family and a mortgage yet and you can take risk, I would say do a little bit of hopping around in and see how smart founders run things before starting your own company. And you don't even have to start your own company. There's like a lot of, I think, um, a lot of people like they feel like almost like, oh, well, I, I can't work for somebody else. It's just not my, it's not my DNA or whatever. I want to be a founder. I'm perfectly happy being, you know, a leader in a com in a company that has a great founder, you know, like, and if your, if your CEO, you know, has a, an entrepreneurial 
mindset and sees things the way you see it, like they'll trust you to do your own thing within the company. You can be an entrepreneur within a company. I know there's that's a kind of a controversial opinion. Like some people are like, oh, if you're not a CEO, you're not an entrepreneur. Well, I, I don't really buy into that. You can have a great career being a number two or a number three or a number 20 at a great company. So that's another thing that I would uh, I would tell my younger self. It's like, don't feel like you have to be the one that starts it. Yeah, it's it might even be the smarter move because to start something yourself, especially if you don't have that experience, man, you got to learn on your own. And it's so hard to one, make something people want and then to grow it. I'd make the argument it's better to like find something that's past validation, past like an A round of funding and be a leader there. Because one, you're going to be working at a mm-hmm. much bigger scale from a P&L perspective and what you get exposure to. You're kind of a good example of that. Like instead of starting something yourself, you were able to be a part of Ronus very early early on, see it go public and write it. I mean, you're, you're super humble about it. I mean, you're instrumental in the growth of that. And I'm sure that's something you had to weigh. Am I going to be a part of this thing where it's like, you're not the CEO, but you're like on the executive team versus start your own thing. I don't know if that was ever like a conscious decision you had to think through. No, not really. I mean, and I always had like, to me doing my like side hustles where it was always like scratch a little bit of the entrepreneurial itch, like the much report product and you know, I've made like some information products and helped write a book and stuff like that. So I always scratch that itch elsewhere. And I, I kind of like the security of not, you know, not having to like worry <laughs> about the the accounting for the business and the HR. And like when you're the CEO and you're starting, you know, especially when you're when you're early on, like all the problems are your problem. And you have to be like willing to take on some of that grunt work with the cool stuff of being like, you know, the CEO who's making the product decisions or, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I I hear you on that. It's kind of nice to be able to just focus on what you want to focus on and and be great at it and not have to worry about payroll and all the non-fun stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. And as far as trends go, you know, I'm not into anything like cryptocurrency or NFTs. Like I haven't really been in that world or anything like that. I know that that's kind of the hot thing, but I guess if I had to pick one trend, it's like, and this kind of relates to Verona stuff, but it's uh, data privacy. So I do think, and it's going to impact marketing in a big way. You know, the fact that like we're moving to a world where people actually care about what data companies are collecting and they're going to start making choices based on how companies treat consumer privacy. And we've seen this already with our regulations like GDPR and California Consumer Privacy Act. And Apple is obviously at the forefront. You know, Apple doesn't want Facebook and using it. Google's now saying that they won't use your search history to determine which ads you get. And browsers like Brave and Firefox are building in a lot of features to prevent like tracking code from running which as a marketer kind of sucks because like we rely on like, you know, certain kinds of cookies to track and create attribution models or to do things like targeted advertising. And so I've been really kind of trying to think of a sort of like post like privacy apocalypse world and what the marketing stack looks like and what tactics <laughs> go away when you don't have the ability to track. And so I'm kind of going through this thought exercise in the back of my mind and looking at like my marketing arsenal and figuring out like what it looks like after the privacy apocalypse. Because I think, while it's probably not like a year or two down the road, it's going to happen and marketers are going to have to change a little bit. So that's my... my Man, you hit it on the head. Obviously, we do a lot of like Facebook and Instagram ads and what's happening there. It directly impacts us because we show clients return on ad spend, cost per purchase, and it's... Mm -hmm baked on that dashboard with the attribution we get. So I'm definitely concerned just for my own business on what that means. Looking at the glass half full, what are the opportunities from that? You know, DuckDuckGo, however long ago when they launched, you know, 
built a search engine where they protect your data. It's like, what are the other things that are going to emerge, whether you're like a marketing persona or just in general? But I think that's a good, it'll be really interesting to see what startups emerge from that because you're spot on. I think it is coming and it's a matter of, you know, how we respond to it. Yeah. And there's two companies. So like Basecamp is, I'm a big fan of Basecamp. You probably read, you know, some of their stuff, you know, their founders, uh, DHH and uh, Jason Fried, they're really good product minds. And uh, I'm a big fan of Basecamp. I use it for all my product project management stuff, but they released an email. Oh, Hey, right. Yeah. Uh, service. Yeah. Hey.com. So one of their big things, like the, the flags they've planted and it really helps with their branding is that they're like very privacy centric. So they don't allow tracking code from firing in there when you read the email. So like people can't track open rates and click rates like they try their best to block wow. what they call like spy pixels so um yeah they they really kind of tried to carve out so back to the easy mode thing it's like well why are we reinventing gmail right like gmail isn't email like a foregone conclusion well you have superhuman you have hey you kind of have these different bins right superhuman is like we're email but we're fast and then hey is like we're email but we care about your privacy and so you can do these little iterations and build massive businesses off them Another one is uh, Fathom Analytics. So the idea is we're going to give you something equivalent to Google Analytics so you can monitor your traffic and see you know, what your top traffic sources are, but we don't use cookies. And so you don't have to have like a cookie banner on your site and stuff like that. And we care about privacy and we're never going to track users. And so it's uh, people are using this privacy trend to build new version, the privacy centric version of anything. So wow. if, uh, if there's founders listening to this and they're looking for the next idea, do the privacy focused version of anything you want crm you know actually that, that'd be kind of hard but you know like whatever the product is yeah i'm cutting this section out so i can go do this but you literally just listed some amazing examples that are killer growth stories right now yeah it's really just taking that one like nuance like you said at the beginning and attaching it to a vertical or a business model really good trend call out that's an awesome one okay so the last question i have i'm always interested in this and you, you may or may not have a good answer it's kind of a tough one but what is the nicest thing any like one person or just in general that someone has done for you for your professional career because i'm always interested in how people get breaks or doors that were open for people or something really tough that someone said to you but does anything come to mind um probably um when my first daughter was born back in 2011 i was working in downtown manhattan and uh, i was living in new jersey and the commute was brutal right like i would drive in traffic like for an hour and a half to jersey city i would take the path train like sandwich in like a sardine <laughs> i'd get out of the train station and then i'd walk you know another like 10 15 blocks and i'd finally get to the office it was like two hours one way two hours back and so i was never getting to see my my brand new baby girl and like it was grinding on me but i loved the company i worked for absolutely loved it the best place ever and uh they just weren't into remote work at the time like it just wasn't part of the company culture and so this opportunity at veronis opened up and i was like look i would love to come work for you guys but i have uh you know i have a situation where i feel like i can be super effective from home and they took a bet on me and said, you know what, like, we don't really care where you're going to work from. And um, it was, uh, it was awesome. And I know now, <laughs> now that we are in a pandemic <laughs> that where everyone's working from home, this sounds like kind of trivial, but back then it meant the world. And <laughs> there was so many companies and there's even companies today that are just still pushing against this idea of working from home. And it kind of baffles my mind. But the fact that they were just like, we believe that you can make such an impact here that, you know, if you have to do it from New Jersey, like, you don't want to miss that time with your daughter. Like, we'll, we'll take that bet. So that was awesome. 
that, that was uh that was really cool right and it's i mean it's in their interest because it's four hours you're just in pain not working and not even with your kid but then also by them doing that one you're going to be happier and it's like more loyalty to the company because you're they're allowing you to do that no that's totally cool but you're right now it's yeah. shoot everybody's going remote post pandemic it's gonna be so interesting to see how it shakes out but i know that that's a really good call out that's cool yeah and i i really like the balance that my company has because you know i'm close enough to one of our offices where you know if it does pay to get people together you know it's it's easy for me to make that commute for two hours or it's a little bit shorter now that i'm in midtown but you do it when needed right and work from home when convenient and when you don't need to be physical so i think to me the blend is like do the logical thing like don't make a hard and fast rule like do what makes sense for that given day yeah that's my philosophy on it. No, totally. And if you go remote, it opens up your pool of candidates you could hire, which I think is also an advantage. You're not just limited to geography of people within a certain zip code range, but it's the, the entire country or world, which is nice. Yeah, absolutely. Well, cool. Well, Rob, this was awesome. As always, I feel significantly smarter every time I talk to you. So thank you for taking the time. And I don't know if there's anything else you'd like to hit on or where people can reach you or anything else you'd want to plug, but yeah, let me know. No, I mean, thank you for having me, Jim. I always love these chats. They're always fun. I always feel smarter when I talk to you too. And you're one of my favorite people to work with. Love, love when we can chat. If people want to reach out and chat, just rsobers on Twitter. Yeah, and your blog where you're overdue for another post, but I'd go back and read Easy Mode. It's a quick read too. I went back and read. I was like, oh, I thought it was longer, but it didn't need to be. It had everything in it. It was awesome. Thank you. Appreciate that. Thanks, Rob. Today's episode is brought to you by no one. Yep, we have zero sponsors. I haven't reached out to any companies, nor would I expect a reputable brand to give me money. But I'll give a few plugs. First, I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out Growth Hit. Growth Hit serves as your external growth team. After working with over 100 startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, Growthit has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out growthhit.com. And finally, I wrote a book called The Growth Marketer's Playbook that takes everything I've learned as a growth mentor for venture-backed startups, and I've distilled it down to 140 pages. So instead of hiring a growth team, save yourself some money, get the book, and you can just do it yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I'd love to hear feedback. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman.